I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. How was Thanksgiving? Good? Did you eat your fill? Yeah? Enough to carry you over into today, the first day of the month fast? Anybody engaging in that? Some? Yeah? It's all right if you forgot. It's okay. There's grace. There's a lot of grace. Um, yeah, we had, we had a really good Thanksgiving. It was nice to be here local, just kind of low-key with family. We are kind of getting over some sickness that's been passed around for a while. And we were really grateful for uh, the sunshine, the sunny weather. The day after Thanksgiving, we actually went. Uh, we got our Christmas tree. We figured might as well take advantage of the sunshine while it was here. And we let Otis, the four-and-a-half-year-old, pick out the Christmas tree this year. Um, we got one that we brought home, and our housemate went, what is that? Like, We're like kind of more of a bush than a tree, I guess, right? And then a friend commented a, a picture that Christine posted and goes, looks like you guys picked out Danny DeVito. So that'll give you an idea of what our Christmas tree looks like. It's maybe not your traditional one, but we think it's beautiful. We love it, really stoked about it. And after we put it all together, uh, it was really fun, uh, you know, the, the boys decorating it and, and then pulling stuff off of it. Uh, Otis stopped and he looked at us and he said, wow, it's beautiful. And he said, but when are all the presents going to start appearing underneath it? And I thought, bro, I'm talking to myself, you got some work to do. Good thing it's the season of Advent, amen? Well, so today is that. Today is, is the very first Sunday of Advent. Um, and for some of you, the word Advent might not be a word you traditionally use around this time, around this season. Uh, but Advent is a word simply that just means the arrival. And what Advent is, is it's the, the official season on the church calendar uh, that starts the, the fourth Sunday, so today, prior to Christmas Day, and it goes for four weeks up until Christmas Day. And really the, the goal and the hope of Advent is that in the midst of all the hustle, the bustle, the activities, the waiting for boxes beautifully wrapped to pop up underneath Christmas trees all over the world, uh, what Advent does is it invites us to take time to remember that there is true hope, peace, joy, and love welcomed and given to us and available to us in Jesus Christ. Advent's important because it calls us to focus on Jesus, to keep everything we do in this season as followers of Jesus focused on Him and remember what His coming actually and truly means for us. And so as we begin this season of Advent, um, in order to understand the, the full context, uh, I, I want to look at a couple passages this morning that you might not typically associate with Advent, but what I'd propose to you is that this really is the, the context. And we, if, if we're going to really engage in Advent well, uh, engage in it thoughtfully, uh, have it not just appear, you know, as Christine read through that, that opening welcome, not appear just almost as like uh, mindful escapism or as like, what are you Christians doing? Why do you have any business celebrating or thinking about those things when the state of the world is what it is? Uh, but for us to look at the reality and again, and, and, and embrace it and, and enter in fully, I want to look actually at uh, the very beginning. I believe that what God has given us here in his scripture, uh, in his word, is his word. It's full of promises. It's full of truth. And if we were to look at it and read it uh, in, a, in a big swath, in a big picture, what's painted for us is the picture of creation, fall, redemption, and then a consummation. And so in Advent, we're celebrating the fact that we live right now in the time when Christ has already come. He's, he's already arrived. The first arrival, first Advent has come. And we're sitting now in this period that we often talk about or speak of as the now but not yet, meaning we're waiting for the, the second arrival, the second coming. And so this morning, I want to look at uh, actually, the, the story of, of Genesis 3 with you, um, to help us understand really why is it that we are, as a people, as the church, called to celebrate the season of Advent, these weeks, these four weeks of preparation before we get to Christmas Day itself. And so if you have a Bible, if you'd open up Genesis 3 with me, if you don't have it, that's okay, it should be up on the screen. And I want to read all of Genesis chapter 3 with you, and then we're going to talk about 
and hope for and just pray that God through this time this morning helps prepare our heart and, and give us a real sense of, of, of hope that, that it comes to us in Christ through this Advent season. So Genesis chapter 3, the fall. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now if you're familiar with this passage, as I assume many of us are, and even the, the two chapters that come prior to this, we know that Adam and Eve were created into a, a perfect world. They were created into the wholeness that overflowed from God's heart, from God's love, as He created and He spoke everything into existence. They were created into intimate relationship with God, and they were created into intimate relationship with one another. They had perfect communion with God, and they had perfect community with one another. No arguing, no fighting, no injustice, nothing wrong. It was perfect, it was beautiful. All of it entrusted to them, granted to them as a gift by God for them to steward, to live in, to enjoy with Him, with, in His presence. No separation, Nothing. Can you imagine? Just the beauty, the perfection, if that was the reality of the world. 
But we know that there was a serpent. And the serpent came and he lied and deceived Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve committed the first sin. And in disobedience and uh, out of being fooled by the enemy, they, they took and they ate of the fruit. And what that did was create a whole new world. A whole different reality for not just humanity, but for creation itself. And you and I feel the weight of that. You and I bear the brunt of that in many ways. The earth itself feels the weight of that. Since this time, every human that has been born has been born with uh, what we call often a sin nature. This reality that we're born and one of our primal desires is to look for life where there is no life. God, the creator of life, has called us into relationship and oftentimes we do what Adam and Eve does and we say, uh, I, I know you're the God of life and I know you're the giver of all things, but I want to go and kind of go on this journey of my own. And we often do that. Now, what happens though is that at the end of them eating the fruit and God calling them and pursuing them and finding them, one of the beautiful things that we see is that in the midst of God giving a judgment, He also gives them the very first words of, of hope. I want to draw your attention because you probably have focused on and heard a lot of the rest of the story. I want you to look for a second at verses 14 and 15 with me, if you will. And I'm going to read it again. And verse 14 and 15 says, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and to dust you shall eat all the days of your lives. I will put enmity, meaning hatred or warring or strife, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I want to give you a moment just to, to look at verse 15. And I invite you to consider, what do you think that means? What do you think verse 15 means? What's God speaking of here? I want you to notice the pronouns that are used. And what I want to draw your attention to is again the fact that in the midst of the very first judgment that God in His justice had to speak into His creation, what God also does is speak great words of hope. In, in academia and theology, this is actually called the Proto-Evangelion the very first proclamation of good news. The fact that though Adam and Eve had turned away, and though creation was now what God had intended it to be, God was still intimately involved in His creation. God was still lovingly present in the midst of His creation with Adam and Eve in relationship with them, still in relationship with them, and not only proclaiming words of justice that needed to be spoken because wrong had been done, but proclaiming words of hope. To give Adam and Eve hope that what they had done wasn't the end of it all. That they, even though they had great free will and even though they were image bearers and represented God in this earth, they didn't have the power in what they did to undo all that God has done. They weren't strong enough nor powerful enough to actually ruin and to wreck and to destroy all that God had created in perfection. See, and I think God knew that we as a humanity needed these words of hope even right there at the very beginning after the very first act of looking for life where there was no life. And one of the beautiful and powerful things about this, the reason why it's the proto-evangelion, the very first proclamation of good news, is because what God says 
to this serpent is that I will put enmity, yes, between you and humanity. Yes, between you and the offspring of humanity from here going forward. And so it gives us this understanding of, of why we feel, and we look at the world and we, we feel spiritual warfare at times, and we feel the attack, we feel the battle. But he says here, there's a he that is coming. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A proclamation, even at the very beginning, of the Messiah to come. The Son of God to come into this world, to, to leave His rightful place at glory with God. He had just actually spoken, the Son of God, I believe, had just spoken these words of creation with the Father and with the Spirit. And right from the very beginning, God promising that the Son would come, He would come, and He would undo everything, that not actually that humanity did, but He would undo everything actually that the serpent had done. This promise of hope right at the very beginning even though words of judgment and justice had to come as well. One of the things that's interesting that you'll see here again is it says that the, the judgment of, for the serpent would involve the defeat by, a woman's, by the woman's offspring. Two promises that are received here. One, the serpent surely would be defeated. And two, God was going to make a way for humanity and all of his creation to be restored in right relationship with himself. And so hold that thought that the promise of God, the hope of God, was going to be coming through a son that would be born to humanity. And now read with me Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and she bore a son named Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, this is a really quick, just kind of matter-of-fact statement. And maybe you're going, why are you laboring on this? What are you, where are you going with this? I want you to imagine for a second being the very first humans in all of creation to have a baby. For those of you that are parents, you know that having your first child is unnerving enough, right? It rocks your world enough. But imagine being the very first humans in all of creation to have kids. There's no baby shower and sweet advice that you're going to get. There's no what to expect when you're expecting book to read. There's no baby planning center app to help you and guide you through and show you, oh, your little peanut is a peanut. And now it's an orange. And now it's a, a melon. None of that. You have no idea what is going on. Nothing. No clues. No help, really. And not only that, once you finally get there and you do give birth, you have a son. And you had just gone through this amazing experience with God where though you had committed sin and disobeyed Him and looked for life where there was no life, God graciously comes and pursues you. God comes and He finds you. And He clothes you and He, he gives you a promise that yeah, though you made a mistake and though you messed up and though I have to make judgment on this earth, here's this promise. Hey serpent, you are judged and you are condemned and it is going to come through the offspring of humanity. Do you hear where this is going? You're the very first humans. God just said that to you maybe a couple days ago, maybe a week ago, not too long ago, and now you have, you give birth to a son. What are you thinking? Scholar James Boyce says this. He says that Adam and Eve likely thought that Cain was the one who would come and defeat the serpent. Then this is reflected in the name that he gave. It says, in view of the promise of a deliverer, 
Cain's name probably means, and Scripture tells us that it does mean, he is here. I've gotten him. So Eve called her son, here he is, because she thought the deliverer had been sent by God already. The Christmas tree set up. The lights are on. It looks beautiful. Where's the presents? Well, they're right here. I mean, God just promised the deliverer is coming. And now He gave us a firstborn son. Surely this is the deliverer. He's here. Do you guys know the story of Cain? Cain was probably exactly the opposite of the deliverer, was he not? Cain ended up murdering his brother Abel and we're told that he walked away from God as opposed to walking with God all the days of his life. So they receive this promise. They have a a firstborn son. They think that the hope that God has given them has been fulfilled. And it's not fulfilled through the firstborn son Cain, nor is it fulfilled through their secondborn son Abel, nor is it fulfilled through their thirdborn son Seth, nor is it fulfilled through the generations of Seth. And you have the people of God then now living generation after generation after generation after generation longing and waiting and looking for God to fulfill His promise that a Deliverer would come. One who would walk upon this earth, who would crush the head of the enemy, defeat the serpent, restore humanity back into right relationship with God, and remove the curse that has been brought upon this earth. Waiting and waiting and waiting. Hope deferred for generation after generation after generation. And that's the thread that's continued all throughout the Old Testament. That's the thread that has continued all throughout 400 silent years until finally we come to the New Testament narrative where we have a handful of people. Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have Joseph and you have Mary. You have the shepherds. You have the wise men. All of them, each of them greeted with the message from a messenger sent by God that indeed the Deliverer was coming. Now again, imagine with me. Pause for a second. You're a part of a people of God that have been waiting for generation after generation after generation. The most recent 400 years have been ones of silence where God has not sent a prophet. Always told the people of God more and more about the deliverer. They'd always reaffirmed this hope even though they were living in seasons of judgment. There was always the hope reaffirmed. The promise of God retold. And each time, actually more and more detail given. More and more detail to tell them who and what the Deliverer looked like and what He was about and the circumstances of His birth and the timing of it all. And again, this small cast of characters waiting and waiting. Can you imagine? Do they still even have hope? Or has it gone stale? Do they proclaim with their voice to one another, yes, I believe. I believe someday the Messiah is coming. Yes, I believe someday the Deliverer is coming but in their heart and in their mind really thinking, yeah, what's the use? What's the point? So you and I, we have the, the fortune, again, of standing in this place. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption has come. Christ has come. He's walked upon this earth. The Deliverer has come. He's lived His life. He's died upon the cross. He's resurrected again. He's ascended. He sits now, right now, high and enthroned, glorified, at the right hand of God the Father. And again, we sit and we live in this period, this time period that we sometimes call the now but not yet. Living in this time of redemption, waiting for the ultimate consummation to come. The already but the not yet. The now but the not yet. 
And I want to read for you a passage written by uh, the Apostle Paul. As Paul was, again, a a Jew and part of the, the, the people who had waited for generations and generations and generations. And again, that longing, I believe, had been there through all the Old Testament writers, through all the prophets. It's there through all the, Old, the New Testament writers. You can see it. And Paul writes this letter to a, to a church, to churches in Rome. And in, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing to a people who have been waiting for a very, very, very long time. And again, even when they thought their, their longing and their waiting had been fulfilled in Christ, they see Him crucified. And yes, they see Him resurrected and they see Him ascend, but they don't fully get it and they fully don't understand it maybe pretty similar to the way that Adam and Eve didn't fully get or didn't understand the words that God had spoken to them in the garden. And maybe even the way that, that Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and the shepherds and angels, maybe that they didn't fully quite understand all the words that had been spoken to them either. And Paul writes, again in Romans in chapter 8, and he says this to a world that has been waiting for a long, long time for the fulfillment of hope. He writes this, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, ever since Genesis 3, the world has been waiting and longing and groaning for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And what Paul recognizes and what I recognize, the world feels that. And you and I feel that. The world feels that. And the season of Advent invites us to slow down long enough to ask ourselves honestly, has our hope in the promises of God grown stale? Or are we a people waiting with hope in the promises of God because of who Christ is in our lives? It calls us and invites us not to mindless escapism, (laughs) not to just frivolous longing, but to honestly stop and to consider and to focus upon Christ and to allow Him to be in the center of all that we do in such a way that we receive the encouragement that Paul speaks of here when he says in verse 23 that not only the creation has been longing, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. See, one of the main encouragements that I take from this is that if you and I feel the longing, if you and I feel the groaning, if you and I at times honestly feel the defeat that Adam and Eve felt, and that the generations of God's people have felt through all the years of longing and groaning, what it means here is that it's, it's not a sign of defeat. 
that we're longing, that we're groaning, that we're still waiting. What it means is that we're actually totally normal. What it means is that we're actually totally and fully human. And God, in this season of Advent, again, gives us permission to feel that, to look around at the world and to say, this is not right. This is not the way you created it. This is not the way that I desire it. And it calls us to look, as Paul says here, hope. who hopes in what they've actually already seen or what they've already received? Who hopes in something that, that, that's already there? But Advent reminds us and calls us to hope and to long for, for something that we have not yet received, that has not yet been fulfilled, but it has been promised to us by God in His Word through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Advent invites us to acknowledge that there's nothing on this earth, no box that's going to come under that tree that's going to actually fulfill the great, great longing that you and I feel day in and day out. Advent calls us to to sobriety, if you will. It calls us to think clearly, clearly clear-minded about the reality of our world, the reality of our condition, and not to be duped nor fooled by the enemy, by some lie. That there is something here on this earth. There is something that you just might receive in this season. There is someone who might just come knocking on your door that's going to fulfill all the longings of your heart. The season of Advent, I believe, is is really the embodiment often of the season of what C.S. Lewis said, in his writings, if I find in this in myself desires that nothing in this world can, can satisfy, the only thing that makes sense is that I must be created for something greater, something more than this. And church, friends, what I want to remind you is that that's exactly what Advent is. It's a season that calls us to slow down, to wait, to, honest exam- to honestly examine our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives, examine the world around us. And to willingly find ourselves to, to join the church throughout generation after generation. To, to, to willingly say, we're part of that people who are willing to long. We're willing to wait. We're willing to fix our eyes upon Christ. Because we know that there is nothing in this world that can fully satisfy the deep longings that we have. Only Christ Himself. And I don't know about you, but that actually gives me great hope. That gives me great hope because it, it helps me to just remind, it reminds me that, that I, I can stop looking, in a sense. I can stop grabbing. I, I can stop trying to finagle. I can stop trying to scheme. I can stop trying to run myself ragged into these things that the world offers. And I can sit confident and peacefully and grounded in an awareness and an identity that's been given to me by grace through a God who is a God of promise. And not just a God of promise, but a God who keeps his promise. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Even though His promise and the fulfillment of it might come in ways that are unexpected and in ways that I did not foresee. See, if we were to stop and to look actually at the story of, of the nativity of Christ and all those players involved, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, one of the key lessons we learned from them is that the proclamation of the arrival of the great Redeemer did not come in a way that they expected or they thought. But that God is not only a God who's still actively involved in pursuing the world that He created in love, but that God is actively pursuing the world that He created in love in unexpected ways. And if God has done that all throughout history with His people, one of, again, one of the things that Advent reminds us is that God is still doing that with you and with I. 
and I. That God in this season, I believe, wants to come and unexpectedly surprise you with hope that you didn't even know was possible. But what Advent again reminds us to is to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ so that when God comes and does proclaim, hey, I've got a gift for you in this season. I've got grace for you in this season. I've got hope for you in this season. That we don't miss out on it. Because one of the other key lessons, if we were to look again at the narratives of the people of God in the season of, of Christ's first advent, His first arrival, we see that there were many who had lost hope and they failed to keep their eyes fixed. And when God came in an unexpected way, guess what happened? They missed it. And so Advent, friends, invites you and I again to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, willingly accepting the grace that comes in unexpected ways. To receive a gift from God in this season that that wasn't even on your radar. And again, that gives me great hope. You know, as we were thinking and praying and considering Advent uh, this year just as a leadership and a teaching team, one of the things that, that came to mind was the fact that we've already <laughs> been hearing for about a month already just carols and songs in every grocery store, every store that you go to. It, it arrives sooner and sooner each year. And, and just thought about the fact that even those great hymns, those hymns that have been written, they, they speak to the longing they speak to the desire that this world has that we all have. Even if, and even if the world around us doesn't notice it or recognize it or take stock of it, we as the people of God have been given those hymns, been given those stories, give, written in song to remind us of, of what we truly wait for. And one of the ones that I, was, I was, that I was considering just contemplating here, thinking about hope, was the, the great hymn, O Holy Night. A hymn that they say was written in 1847 wasn't then translated into English until 1855. And one of the lines proclaims this. It says that there's a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. So again, Advent reminds us of who Christ is and it invites us to acknowledge the groaning, embrace the longing, but look for the presence of Christ in the midst of it all. I want to read to you again the, the quote that Christine actually had started with as she began the welcome. This is a quote by Sarah Bessie and she said, Advent reminds us that God seeks us out where we are right now. God comes to give us a thrill of hope right now even in the midst of our longing. Not where we should be by our own or anyone else's estimation. God seeks us out when we're in exile and when we are suffering, when we're callous and when we're cowardly, when we are more concerned with common sense than faithfulness, when we are fearful and we are arrogant, when we are lost and when we are broken, when we are sad and when we're alone, when we are traumatized and we're wondering when the light will start to win, when we feel forgotten and bored and insignificant and tired, when we are wounded, and even when we are the ones who are wounding. In this season of Advent, friends, I invite us to embrace the reality of, of what we see in our world, the reality of what we know in our own hearts, but to also embrace the reality that God's a God of promise. And I'd offer for you these, these words of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah was one of the great prophets who came, was sent to, to the people of God in the midst of their longing after years and years and generations and generations. And the prophet Isaiah says this, these words of hope. He says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. 
Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and He will save you. Church, in this season of waiting, even if you can't see it, I want to remind you this morning that God is at work on your behalf. In your seasons of waiting, God is forming you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. In this season of Advent of waiting, God loves you. Yes, He wants you to seek Him. Yes, He wants you to have intimacy with Him. But God, more than anything, wants you to remember that He is a God that pursues and He is a God of promise and He is a God of hope. Even when the world has nothing like that to offer us, He is a God of hope. Jesus is our thrill of hope. Jesus is the reason why we, in the midst of a weary world, can rejoice. And we are the people that get to carry hope into this world. And so this morning, I want to give you three questions to consider. Three things just to to ponder about how you might experience hope in unexpected ways. You might experience the thrill of hope in Christ, even as we might acknowledge we're weary. One would be this. When you personally don't get the first generation fix that you thought was coming, what do you do? And what do you place your hope in? See, I remind you that again, Adam and Eve, they didn't get their first generation fix. (laughs) Nor their second, nor their third. But we do see that Adam and Eve kept their hope in the promises of God. And I think this question would invite us in line with Romans to just examine and go, when I don't normally get my first generation fix, where do I normally turn to? What's what's the thing that I often see that I turn to? But if we're honest and along with, with the book of Romans, it doesn't actually fulfill me. Second question I'd offer you is this. When you consider the waiting that God's people have endured throughout generation after generation, how does it inform your own waiting in this season? And how does it call you to have hope in Christ in this season? How might it encourage you and and buoy you in a season that might be hard? Third question I'd pose to you would be this. What unwelcome or unexpected circumstance do you need to surrender to God fully today and look for the presence of Jesus to find true hope? What's the unexpected circumstance or unwelcome thing that's going on in your life right now that you need to surrender fully to God and look for the presence of Christ to find true hope? And lastly, as we come to the table for communion and we have our closing worship this morning, on the table is not only the elements, but there's also cards and some pens. And I believe, as I said earlier, that the season of Advent invites us to, to slow down and to consider things honestly as they are in order that we might receive, might see the person of Christ and receive the hope of Christ. And so I invite you to take a few minutes this morning to write a prayer to God about something you're waiting on Him to answer. And tell Jesus this morning through your prayer, whether it's written or whether it's in your heart, in your mind, tell Jesus about the places where your faith feels frail and ask Him to come and to give you hope and to give you encouragement in His promises. So let me pray and then we'll have the worship team come up and we'll come to the table and we'll seek Christ for the hope that He offers us in this season. So Father, we thank You this morning for today. We thank You for this season of Advent. We thank You that You're a God that has set seasons and times and places set as they are according to Your sovereignty, according to Your goodness. And I thank You this year in particular for the season of Advent. Thank You for calling us to slow down, to be mindful, to be aware 
of the realities of the things in the world and the realities of the things in our own hearts. And God, we're, we want to be honest and just say that, that we're with the world in groaning and in longing. Our hearts cry out. We desire something more than this. And Lord, at the same time, we believe that You've called us to more than this. That You've created us for something new. A new creation, a new heaven. A redemption that's full and complete and whole in Christ. And God, and in the midst while we wait, we wait with that longing and the expectation. Jesus, in this season, we want to see You. We want to know You. We want to be more intimate with You than we have before. And so would You come, Lord Jesus, as You have time and time again. Would You surprise us in unexpected ways. Father, would You show us the depth and the reality of Your grace. Show us the goodness of Your promise. And let us be a people who are buoyed by the hope that comes from knowing. Not only that, Lord, would You allow us to be a people who are confident in this season to declare and proclaim in love and in gratitude the hope that is found in Christ to our friends, to our neighbors, and to an onlooking world that is groaning and longing for You, even if they don't know it. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your love, Your pursuit of us in this season. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.